Ushers, please inform people in the hallways that we are beginning service, at least the preaching portion of it. They're going to talk, at least go to McDonald's or Starbucks or something. If you have a cell phone, in particular, if you have a ringtone that you don't want anyone else to know about, please put it on vibrate or turn your cell phone off for this, for this period of time. Some of us have ringtones that we, that we like, except for on Sunday morning. So we don't want to hear no Cardi B ringtones in church. So like it's two or three people like, man, I, I can't come here then. All right, so let's uh, open your Bibles. If you have a Bible or a Bible app to Romans chapter three, we are in, we are making our way back to where we ended a few months ago in Romans eight. We're making our way back to Romans eight. We spent a, a lot of time apart from that, covering a lot of different things that we felt like were necessary for us to cover. In particular, the last series was called A Moment of Clarity where we looked at particularly asking certain questions, what is faith, what is a Christian, what is the Bible, and so forth. But we're heading back into Romans, and we did a review last week of chapters 1 and 2. And the reason why we're reviewing is because Romans is such a dense book theologically. There are some people in this room who may not even be that familiar with Romans and what it means. And so uh, the purpose of today and then the next week will be to finish the review, getting back up to Romans 8, and then we'll come and do our regularly scheduled program where we take a couple of verses from the chapter and hopefully explain it as accurately as, as we can, as the Bible's intended, and we'll build back up to finishing the book sometime before Jesus comes. So, maybe, right. He might actually come back and finish it. <laughs> Jesus might come back and be like, Kurt, I'll take it from here. I'll just... And you know, funny thing, there'd be a couple of people like, well, Lord, let me finish. It's like, nah, you take, he'll take it from here. So if he comes back. Now let me say this about a sermon like this. This is going to be an overview of two and a half chapters. So this is not going to feed, this isn't a normal sermon. So there's going to be a lot of information. It's going to be dense. We're going to go through chapter three, chapter four, up to ver chapter five, verse 11. At least that's, that's the goal, right? So the Lord can do whatever he wants. He might come back and be like, I got it from here. And that would be different. So, so there's going to be a lot of information. A lot of this is going to be reviewed. So I'm not going to zoom in and talk about everything, all the richness that comes out of this. If you really want to, if you're intrigued by something you hear today, I would, I would I ask you to go back, go to our website, solidrockchurch.net, look under sermons and find the, I think that we have a, uh, we have a link for the Roman series, right, Phil? Okay, so Phil put a link for the Roman series. Click on that. First of all, can we just thank Phil for a second? Phil is, <laughs> Phil, y'all have no idea the work that guys like Phil and like Mike and Ashara and the media team put in to make us look like we look good. So <laughs> I just want you to know these, these people work hard. I mean, Phil had to go in, find all, this, all the sermons for particular series and make them so they can be one series, so you don't have to scroll back to like April 2015. So I'm grateful for that. But what we're doing is, is if, you, if you're interested in hearing more, more about whatever the topics that you're going to hear today, please go back and listen to those sermons. I'm only going to hit certain things, and that's intentional, because this is a review. I'm just reminding us, helping us get back into the world of 
Romans. So this isn't intended in any way, shape, or form to cover everything the verses say. Sometimes I'm going to zoom in on some stuff. Sometimes I'm just going to not even mention it, all right? Having said that, we are at last week we ended chapter 2, and we're now making our way to chapter 3. And what is happening in the book of Romans is in verses 1... Uh, Chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17, Paul makes this significant claim about he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power to save and that it justifies the righteousness. Now, it declares people righteous before God. And now he spends from chapter 1, verse 18, up into chapter 3, verse 20, explaining why people need Jesus. So at the end of chapter 1, he highlights the Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people, and the the kind of sins that they were engaged in and why they need God. Then he goes to chapter 2, and he talks about the Jews, the people who were actually given the law of God, but they failed to keep that law, so then he explains why they need God. So this is what he's just doing. The point that he's trying to make is, listen, there isn't a person alive, no matter how religious you are, no matter how moral you are, no matter what your standard of good is, it's never good enough to make it to heaven. One of my favorite lines on Kanye West's Jesus is King album is when he said, when I get to heaven's gate, I ain't got to peek over. I know we're not having a concert here. Look, people, people, if you have some people in front like, oh, here we go. That's not what we're doing today. We just... We just measured in the line. We, it's some people that say, I don't like rap. So a, well, we sang a country song for worship, so you got yours. All right. That was great, by the way. Shout, hey, where, where, that, was, that was, thank you. That was great. It had like a nice country feel, right? It took me back, you know? Had two or three people in the back line dancing. It was beautiful. So, all right, so this, this idea that getting to heaven's gate, so just standing before God, is only going to get, people are only going to get in if they have faith in Jesus Christ. And whether we believe that or not, it doesn't make it less true. It's just reality. It's God's reality. And so what Paul is doing is he's making sure that the Christians in this particular church, and obviously those around the world who were interact with this book, understand the reality that those who didn't have the law, like the Gentiles, who were never circumcised, need Jesus. But those who did have the law, like the Jews, who were circumcised, Need Jesus. So this is an argument that he's making, and we're going to jump right back in in the middle of this argument. And this is important. This is a very important argument. At the end of chapter 2, he says something significant about circumcision. He challenges the Jewish understanding of circumcision. And, And let me make sure you understand why this is a big deal for them. In Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14, here's what God says. Here's where the idea of circumcision comes into play for those who are Israelites, those who are Jewish. God says this to Abraham. As for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. So a covenant is a contractual agreement between God and people. I'll do this, you do this. That's the contractual agreement. Biblically, it's called a covenant. But a covenant is, is, is instituted by God. It's initiated by God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to save you. Therefore, this is how you live. And this is what it looks like to be my people. This is what it looks like to believe in me. And circumcision was one of those things, at least for males. And so here's what he says. This is my covenant between me and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, 
Every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. Must have his anatomy cut so that it represents, okay, I'm in relationship with God. It says, my covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right. So for the Jewish people, you're talking a couple of thousand years of thinking circumcision is fundamentally a part of our identity. When we get circumcised, this is who we are. This is our covenant with God. This is our, we're in the relationship of God. Yahweh, the God who created everything, is our personal God. And one of the ways that we identify with that is that we circumcise all the males. This was a huge reality for the Jewish community, for the Israelites. This was fundamentally a part of their identity. They would, have you been circumcised? If you hadn't, you're not in the covenant. You've broken God's law. So when Paul says this, at the end of chapter 2, when he says in verse 28 of chapter 2, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter, meaning the law. The, that person's praise is not from people but from God. So here Paul is now saying that because of Jesus, that circumcision doesn't count. This, this whole thing that, that transformed a person's identity. I mean, imagine finding out something significant about you is just not true. Something significant about who you are is no longer true. And it's how you've seen the world your whole life. And then you find out, ah, that's actually not the case anymore. That doesn't count anymore. This is a paradigm shift for them. Imagine someone, if you're a parent, someone walking up to you and saying, I'm sorry, taking your child. The government now has control over your children, taking them from you. It's like, what? I'm sorry, I'm taking this from you, this thing that you was in your family for generations, this home that your great-great-grandfather built and said, and everyone's living, I'm taking it from you. And that's these isn't even close comparison. But these are things that just are a part of a person's identity. And then now he's saying that that doesn't even really count. This is a paradigm shift for the Jewish people to be like, wait a minute, our whole identity is connected to being circumcised, and now you're telling us that this circumcision doesn't get me to heaven? I'm not right with God because I'm circumcised? Today it would be like this, well, I'm a spiritual person. I'm spiritual. I'm, I'm right with God. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to do all these things. I don't have to believe in Jesus. I'm spiritual. I'm a good person. I'm this, I'm that. It's like, what? So when you say, no, you actually need to believe in Jesus because the, the good that you do is not good enough, people get offended at that. Don't think for a moment that the Jews are not tempted to be offended that their functional identity is now nothing. But that's not what he's saying. He says, no, Jesus is everything. Circumcision is nothing. Jesus is everything. 
But he gets even more specific about what circumcision really means. It's not just you're physically cut. He says you're cut to the heart. And so he goes into chapter 3 with these words. So what advantage does the Jew have? So this is a great question. If you're Jewish and you're listening to him just say, circumcision doesn't matter. Circumcision of the flesh doesn't matter. The thing that you've done for generations doesn't matter. It doesn't make you right with God. The natural question is to be like, well, what's the point of circumcision then? What's the point of it? And he answered that here. He says, what advantage does the Jew have or what is the benefit of circumcision? He says, considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. This is a significant statement. So for the Jews who would hear that and be like, well, then what was the point? Did we waste our time? What was the point of circumcision? He says, no, 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 no. There's an advantage that the Jews have. Is that out of all the nations, all the ethnicities in the world that ever existed, God chose your nation, your ethnicity to say, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And later on, salvation for the whole world is going to come from a person in your nation. That is an honor. That's an honor. So he's not trying to say, no, no, no. There's advantages in every way. You all have the law of God. You learned how to be right. You know, there are people who grow up in a Christian home. And this is a parent's worst nightmare. They walk away from the faith. And you, you struggle. You think, man, I, a lot of mistakes I made as a parent. A lot of things you wish you could take back and you know you can't. And, and you wrestle with that. And, and you just, it breaks your heart to see that or someone that you care about is not I'm talking about people who walked away, people who knew this, not people who were not saved. And you see this and you think, man, but I think parents really feel this burden. And you see this and you think, wow, they're just doing their own thing. But you know what? That child has no idea how blessed they were to grow up in a home where the truth was established for them. There's a lot of things that they don't understand about the world that are wicked, that they don't need to because they grew up a particular way. Their worldview was shaped a certain way. And God is faithful. For any parents who feel like that's, they can resonate with that, as long as your child is still here, grace is still available. So you grow up and you hear this truth, there's an advantage. The Jews have an advantage. They were the first, they were entrusted with the very words of God. You know, for many of us, the Bible is a book that we may or may not read. But from God, these are the very words of me. These are the words that I communicated so that all people would know how to live for me. He didn't say, I told you everything you need to know about life. Not every question you would ever have, at least. But everything you need to know about life and godliness and how to honor me, I put in this book, and I entrust it to this community. So you're blessed. You're blessed. The problem is the Jews thought, because of that, we're good. Because of that, we're good. Okay, you gave us the law, good. And we got circumcised, we're good. They didn't realize that when you break the law, you disqualify yourself from the rewards for, for living it out. You can't do it. So he says this, 
A next logical question. What then, if some were faithful in verse 3, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? These are, these, are, these are questions. He hasn't been to this church yet. These are questions. He, Paul, the writer of this letter, does this very well. He asks questions in anticipation of what people are going to say when they hear what he says. And then he answers those questions so the people who have that question hear it answered right after it. So when you're thinking you hear the, the circumcision means nothing, then the logical question is to be like, what's the point of circumcision then? And he says, it meant nothing for us. I was like, no, that's actually not true. You were entrusted with the very words of God. That's a precious gift. I have a friend whose son, my friend is a pastor, and his son has walked away from the faith. And I, and I knew, I've known this kid since he was a baby. I mean, I was there when he was born. And he's, he's, a, he's, he's grown now. He's moved to the West Coast. And he just had a birthday. And my friend asked me and some other people, would we make a video just to encourage him? He thought it would be encouraging to him. And you know, when people walk away from the Lord, there's a certain, or they reject the Lord, there's a, especially if they're aware of it, there's a certain been there and done that, a certain arrogance about them, a certain sense of like, yeah, I, that was, you know, that was your thing. I'm not really, there's a certain veneer about a certain aura that comes off that, Really, it's going to come back to haunt them, but, but, that's, but, it's, but it's there. And, and so as I was thinking about, what do I say to this dude? I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to tell him the reality. So I did the video, and I joked with him at first, told him to be careful, you know, who he, who he dates, make sure he sees baby pictures and all that stuff. <laughs> you know, you just don't know. Tell him to make sure you see elementary, junior high. Prom photos, all that. Make sure all that's covered before you get serious. That's real. That's real, that's real today. That's real. <laughs> Laugh if you want. That's wisdom. I'm telling my kids when it's their time. You bring somebody home, son, I need to see birth certificate, all that. I need to see all that. But then I said to him, I said, hey, bro. I said, you've been given a gift. You grew up in a home where you knew the truth. And even though it wasn't perfect and your parents made a lot of mistakes and you still know the truth and you are responsible to use that truth. So at some point, come home, come back home. And my buddy said, man, he watched that thing about 10 times. I don't know what'll happen to him, but I know he's received a gift. When you get the very words of God, you've been given a gift. This is important for us because, again, we struggle to read. I'm not a reader. You know, we struggle to read the Bible, all those different things that we all have them, or it's just not engaging to us. If it's not telling us something to do directly or doesn't speak to a specific circumstance that I'm in, then, it's, then the Bible becomes somewhat optional. And he's saying here, this is the very words of God they've been entrusted in. So then what happens if people are faithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's? I mean, God, these are the people that God chose, and these people were were significantly unfaithful. So does this nullify God's faithfulness? And the answer is in verse 4, absolutely not. Let God be true even though everyone else is a liar, as it was written, that you may be justified by your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? He says, I'm using a human argument. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm using an argument that people who are non-spiritual would say. Well, if 
if my unrighteousness highlights the glory of God, then why not just be unrighteous more than? In other words, translation, if my sin glorifies God and shows how much, how grateful, how merciful God is, then why don't I just keep sinning? What's the point of not sinning then? What's the point? Or does that mean that because God's given me grace that somehow something's wrong with him? And he's speaking to them. He's saying, ah, not true. Not so. Verse six, end of verse five. Is God's unrighteousness to inflict, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? In other words, if he's so merciful and I'm going to sin and he's supposed to show grace, then is he unrighteous to judge people, to inflict wrath on people? In other words, is, it, is God wrong to send people to hell for disobedience? That's what he's getting at. And he says, absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Well, here's what he's trying to say. He, 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 he's trying to say that our unrighteousness glorifies God and points to God's righteousness. And here's how. When we sin and we do wrong, we show that God is the only one who's right because who are we sinning against? We're sinning against a standard that we didn't set up. This isn't a New Year's resolution we're breaking here. Says when we sin and we're unrighteous to God, it demonstrates God's righteousness, one, in that he's the one who set the standard. So we're failing to disobey a standard that God set up, that God put in place. And we prove when we keep it, when we resist sin, we prove that God's standard is righteous because we're trying to keep it. This is why one of the greatest, greatest schemes of the devil is to convince believers that when they, that, they, that they when they feel guilty over sin or guilty over things, that that's somehow a bad thing. And that's actually a scheme of the devil. See, the conviction, the guilt that you experience is the result of the spirit in you making it the reality known that you disobey God. Even if no one else knows you did, you feel that because you you've disobeyed the standard that you know to be righteous. Most times that's called conviction. Where the spirit is helping you see that. So when a lot of times our guilt is the expression of God's spirit in us, we feel bad that we did this. We know that this is wrong. When we don't feel any guilt, that's when there's a problem. Because I remember before I was a Christian, there wasn't guilt. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have times where you, you, you minimize the, the guilt that you should feel. But, but there's a sense where at some point, ooh, it's going to come to reality. That's evidence of the Spirit's work. And that's how we show that, wow, God is righteous because we actually think his standard is worth living, even though we can't keep it perfectly. It's worth trying. Another way that we do this, and what we have to realize is whoever sets the standard for how to live has the right to judge 
those who don't keep that standard. All right, so think, many of us in here haven't been to the military, but we know enough to know if you join the military, there's going to be certain decorum that you must keep. If you don't keep this decorum, that's, that's whatever they say. Sometimes you know it. Sometimes they busting in your room at 358. Everybody has to get up and stand up. And you got two minutes to get dressed to go on a 10K. Now, I know people who've trained for months to run a 5K. Imagine them kicking open your door and saying, get dressed. Get all your gear, put it on, and we're going on a five-mile run. And you got to sing whatever song they say, here we go, the rider, here we go. You're like, man, you can't be like, man, I don't like this song, Sarge, can we sing something else? Or imagine you being like, man, I'll I'll meet y'all up there, man, I'm tired. You'll be in trouble, right? You'll be in serious trouble. Shoot, even if you're a babysitter, you have a babysitter and say, okay, at 8 o'clock, you got to stop doing that. And then it's 8.07, and they still trying to do it real quick. All right, all right, I'm almost done. And you're sitting there. And say, like, okay, tell your mom and dad there are consequences. There are consequences. When you set the standard, there are consequences for not keeping it. Because God has set the standard for righteousness, there are consequences for not keeping it. And there's one more thing that's really important, that just because people don't keep the standard, doesn't mean there's something wrong with the person who said it. Now, there are some laws that would say a parent was responsible for the actions of their child, but in most cases, in most cases, if we hear something horrific, we've all seen this happen, newsflash, armed teenager goes into a school and kills however many people. Rarely do you see the parents go to prison because of that. People may be angry at the parent. They may somehow blame the parenting on the actions of the child. But for the most part, you understand that child is responsible for its own actions and consequences. It's even more so with God. He set the standard. And just because people break it doesn't mean there's something wrong with God for setting it. And something wrong with God for disciplining those who don't keep the standard. He's leading us to make a grandiose statement in the next section. He's going to tie all this together. All this together that concludes the reality of man's sinfulness versus God's holiness. And the reality of the gospel is the power to say that he's been talking about since Romans 1, 16 and 17. And he gets to verse 9 and lays it out fully. The extent of the bad news, if you will. He says this in verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. So much for saying I'm spiritual. (laughs) Or so much for saying, well, I've been circumcised. Their throat is an open grave, verse 13. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Translation. Everyone is evil. No one glorifies God in a way that's acceptable enough to him to get to heaven. And no one can obey the law, the, the, even the law that he gave. Think of the Ten Commandments. No one in this world except for Jesus has ever kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. No one. And even if you haven't done everything in that, James says this, if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. So the standard is not, well, don't break. I mean, I, I did break like three, four, and five, but I've never done seven, eight, and nine, but if you've broken all ten. He's making this case and saying, listen, this is the reality. And everyone will become subject to God's judgment. No one will be justified. God sets the standard. There is no spiritual. There's no such thing to God. There is no, well, I did this and did that. You have people in the Gospels tell Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And he said, well, you know the law. Honor your mother and father. Do this. And he said, all, all these I've done since my youth. And Jesus just smiled, I think. I think Jesus smiled. Oh, okay. Okay. There's one thing you lack. Sell all your goods and follow me. In other words, you care more about your possessions than you do about your eternal destination. Which means covet, idolatry. You have a God over the God. So he lays all this out. Lays all this out. He's making sure they understand no one listening to this letter, no one anywhere is right before God, will stand before God and be declared righteous. God has no grandchildren. No one gets to heaven because they grew up and their parents were Christian. God has no cousins, no nephews. He just has sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. So now that he's made this case that everyone's guilty before God by violating their conscience or disobeying the law given to them, he brings us back to the hope of the gospel that he's not ashamed of from Romans 1, 6. And he goes to verse 21 and says this, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. In other words, the, the law and the prophets have all talked about this righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We read this verse a lot, and it just goes over our heads like the speed bump that you may or may not slow down for. No, there's certain speed bumps I ain't slowing down for. I don't know about you. I measure how big it is. And if I think that's a big speed bump, I'm going to slow down, because then you're going to hit the bottom of your car, then you get scared for a while. When you hear a certain noise, it won't go away. Maybe that just happens in my household. My wife will let me know quick something's wrong with the car. I'm like, it only makes that noise when you drive it, though. Why does that always happen? Here's what he's saying. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 23. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So all people have sinned willfully and joyfully but then are given forgiveness freely. So you've done all these things and have come up short of the glory of God. And instead of God punishing you, 
He said, I'm going to punish Jesus instead of you and give you forgiveness freely. Freely. So you've done all these things. Jesus did nothing wrong, and you're given forgiveness freely. If we, we probably, it, it, only God knows how many sins we've actually committed. But I would say that most of us are in the millions or so. In the millions. I mean, if you just sin one time a day, one time a day, that means you got 365 sins in a year. Just one time a day. If you do twice a day, now you're at 730. Should we keep going? No one can claim they've only sinned twice today, right? What if you find out that loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself is something you've never done fully? So you've sinned every single moment of your life. And all it takes is one for God to judge. And he says, you know what? All the sins you've done, the millions of them, I'm going to give you grace, forgiveness, a new identity, a new hope, a new destination, free. Free. There isn't a person in this room. There is a guy named Bill Polt. He's a billionaire, I think. He's got a lot of money. He's, every, he's always giving away money on Twitter. Every day he'll be like this. I'm going to give away $8,000 It'd be $21,000 to anyone who retweets this, and he does this. Every day, I see these in my Twitter feed. Anyone who retweets this, in the next 72 hours, make sure you follow me. I'm going to DM you and give you whatever he says he's going to give. And then he'll prove that he did it by showing video responses of people who were actually giving the money. I'm talking about $7,000, $8,000, $10,000. Shoot, I follow and retweet the dude every time he says something. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with that. Right, I'm retweeting. I ain't won yet, but I'm retweeting. <laughs> it's free. It's a gift. <laughs> All it takes is I retweet. That's it. I retweet. I see. I keep seeing retweeting. I'm retweeting. Sometimes I don't. It's like a hundred dollars. I don't really count. One <laughs> the one the other day was seven thousand dollars. It's seventy-two hours. Should be up sometime this afternoon. I'm checking. It's a free gift. But I can quantize what seven grand is. We can't quantize what eternity is. Right, right, right. But what we do know is there's a free gift in Jesus Christ. All the billions of sins that we do. He said, man, it's a free gift. God presented him, verse 25, as an atoning sacrifice and his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, no sin is going unpunished. No sin. Sin is either going to be punished on Jesus or on the person who commits it. God presented him to demonstrate, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time so that the world would be righteous and, and, and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Righteous just means like not guilty, essentially. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No. On the contrary, by the law of faith. In other words, no one can boast. This is a very important verse for this day and age. Because there are particular strands of Christianity or people who are self-righteous 
towards people who are not Christians or don't have as much theology. And the reality is, is you're not saved or don't believe what you believe on your own terms. You're saved because God gave you a free gift. What are you boasting for? For we conclude, verse 28, that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In other words, faith doesn't say, okay, well, I don't got to obey God, then I can just do whatever. This is not, we, we, we don't, doesn't nullify the law. We still obey the law. We're responsible. We're responsible for the grace that we're given. So we want to act accordingly. You know, the Jewish community, they were brought out of Egypt, right? They were saved first. Then they were given the law. This is how you live now as a result of that. They were saved first. Now this is how you live. And their, their response was, man, we were saved from what we were, where we were, from the slavery that we were into. We, we want to glorify you, even though they didn't. There was a reality. It's the same thing for us. We were saved first. Now this is how we live. This is how we live. This is why it's important for believers. Let me, this is really important. We can't tell. We relate to people based on the sins that they commit, right? And we're trying to get people to change their behavior before they've been introduced to the Savior. You can't do that. Because then what we're saying is, oh, you got to stop this and stop that and stop that. Man, people need to experience the Lord first. And then in time, those things will happen. We're evaluating people. We're acting like everybody's a believer. You, you, you're doing wrong, and you're doing wrong, and you're doing wrong. Of course these people are supposed to live like that. Of course. They don't know Jesus. Why would, they, why would a person resist anything? I appreciated Kanye West telling people on his album, Abstain from Sex and all these things. I appreciate it, but you ain't going to tell this dude to do that. He's not going to be like, oh, okay, yeah. He's going to be like, what's he talking about? It's foolishness to him. It doesn't make sense. We do things after we've experienced conversion. After we get, this is why people will repent and be baptized. There was no obedience that they could do after hearing the message of being baptized yet. Whatever you were doing, you were still doing that when you got baptized. Then afterwards, you say, okay, now I'm going to start doing these things. So we don't nullify the law, we, we uphold it. That's the good news that Jesus has come freely gives people who believe in him forgiveness, grace, entrance into the kingdom, a part of the process of him restoring all things to the way God intended. And Paul is really trying to make sure they get this. To further prove the point, he goes into chapter four. He wants to talk about that it's really about faith so much. So let's look at the greatest figure that you know of in the, what we consider the Old Testament, the greatest figure in the Bible as it relates to faith outside of Jesus, let's view his life and see why is he called the father of the faith. And so he, enter, he starts to go into this in verse 4 to prove the point that it's by faith and not by some keeping some law, some work. So he goes and he says this, what then will we say that, uh, what will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Going back to Genesis 15, 6. Now to the one who works, 
Pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. So here's what he's trying to say. Listen, Abraham, who the, all the people who are in this church would know who he is, and most of us know who Abraham is. The reason why Abraham is so highly esteemed, because God says something that was almost unbelievable to him. Right. Not only will you have a child in your old age, your wife and you, she, you're 90, she's 80. Not only am I going to give you a child naturally from her, but then it's going to be, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. And if you could look at the stars in the sky, those are going to be your offspring. That is beyond his comprehension. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he believed God and God says he's credited as righteousness. You know why that's important for us? Because none of us were there to see Jesus. None of us were there to verify that he was a real person, that he died on the cross. None of us were there to see him rise from the dead. None of us were there to see any of that. So we essentially believe because the word of God says it. And God says, all right, you're righteous. You're declared not guilty because you believe. Remember Thomas? Mm -hmm. Thomas would say, I'll believe when, I, when he can put his fingers in the holes in my hands, and when I can put my fingers in the holes of his hands. And then he shows up and says, Thomas, here I am. Put your fingers in the holes, like you said. And he said, my Lord and my God. And he said, you believe because you see Blessed are those who do not see and believe. This reality of faith, don't think you don't have faith. The Christian, the Christian life or the theology of Christianity is not like, we believe it because we believe it to be true, and I believe it is true. And there is rationale to it. But there's stuff that just doesn't make sense. It's not like anybody can just believe this and it's nothing. Like it actually does take faith to believe this. Don't nullify the faith that you have because you still have struggles. The faith that God has given you and, uh, and everything that all of us are trying to do is solely without evidential proof from our senses. If you are a Christian and you read your Bible and you pray and you're fighting, even though you fail at times, you are doing all of this. You're doing everything you're doing, the way you live, the way you parent, the reason you give, the, the reason you serve. All these things you're doing without any proof from your senses that this is real. It's 100% faith. Be encouraged. Don't nullify your faith. We were never meant to be able to see. The reward is sight. The goal is sight. The journey is faith. To further prove the point of how amazing being forgiven is when you don't deserve to be forgiven. I got to remember, the gift is free, right? So it's not like we haven't earned forgiveness from God. There is no good enough to be like, oh, man, that's, hey, yeah, he's, he's, he's real good. Man, let him in. This doesn't work like that. That conversation is not happening in heaven. What about him? God? Yeah, he's amazing, you know. The best we got is Job. What about my servant Job? And that was to the devil. What he does is he builds on the reality that forgiveness is an amazing thing. Beginning in verse six, he says this. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes David in Psalm 32, one, it says one and two says this. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Listen to what he says. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. 
These are lawless acts are forgiven and sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Here's why this is good news today and not just in when he wrote this. Because we sin all the time. And our consciences, we sin against our consciences and the law that we know, the standards that we know. And if those were the things that we had to keep perfectly in order to be forgiven, we wouldn't be. But he says lawless acts are forgiven. The person, the Lord, will not charge with sin. In other words, there will be no, no justice, no punishment, eternal punishment for the sins that we commit because of Jesus Christ. And so he's showing that even David, King David, from at this point when he wrote this, you're talking over a thousand years ago. Even David wrote down a thousand years ago the reality of sins being forgiven and sin not charged to you that you deserve because it's a free gift of God is incredible. You're blessed. Going back to making sure that he hits the nail on the head with circumcision. So he's, listen, he's, he's doing, when you're, I don't know how many of you have ever been in a situation like a street fight. I have a feeling many people in this room haven't been in a street fight. I'm talking about with multiple people, not like just you and a dude knuckling up, like, let them fight, let them fight. I'm talking about there's four or five people, and you just got to swing. And you hope you hit and don't get hit more often. And there are times when you're in a situation like that, you're just swinging at anything. You're just hoping to connect. You're hoping to make your, your, your hands hurt, not your own face. That means you got hit, if you don't follow me. And in that situation, you're just throwing stuff, making sure it connects. And in a metaphor, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an analogical sense, this is what he's doing right here. He's making sure everybody gets hit. Paul is making sure the Jews get hit, the Gentiles get hit, dude in the third row eating chips is getting hit. Everybody, everyone is getting hit. He's making sure you understand. Clarifying his position, making sure you understand Jesus, forgiveness, free grace, not circumcision, not law, none of that stuff, not spirituality, not the deity that you were worshiping, none of that. It's Jesus. It's faith. It's faith. It's faith. Faith. It's Abraham. You got to have faith like Abraham. It's faith. He's hitting everyone. He's swinging all over the place. This guy's an octopus right now. <laughs> so he goes back in verse 9 and says, in the and this blessing, is the blessing only for the circumcised? No, he's making sure, look, the Jews and the Gentiles go back and forth. The Gentiles arrogantly think the Jews no longer matter to God because they rejected God. And the Jews still think the Gentiles are less than God's people because they didn't get the law and they're not circumcised. So he's going back and forth. He's hitting everybody, this whole letter. Wait till we get to chapter 11. Talks about the state of the Jewish people. He's making sure everyone's getting hit. And he's going back to the things, that, the parameters in which, the, here's the boxing ring for them. For the Jews, it's circumcision and the law. He's making sure that while you're in the ring, you, you can't win that fight. So he says, and the blessing, is the blessing only for the circumcised then, the Jews? Says, or is it also for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Do you know when Abraham was credited with faith, there were no Jews yet. 
there were no Jews yet. There was just Abraham. There were no Jews yet. So he goes on in verse 10, in what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? So when Abraham was declared righteous before God, was he circumcised yet or uncircumcised? If he was circumcised, then that means the righteousness is credited to the work that he did by circumcising himself. If he was uncircumcised, then he was considered righteous before God, not guilty for any sins he committed without doing anything. This is what's at stake here. He's making sure. Remember, everybody's getting hit. And he says this in verse 11. And he received, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe, but they're not circumcised. So he's clarifying what this means. Abraham was circumcised after he was declared righteous. So this was sort of a seal. You know how when you, all of us, when we buy food, you go to the grocery store and you can buy food. And say you eat out a little bit in the course of the time you go to the grocery store or whatever. Some time goes by and you want a bowl of cereal. And you open the refrigerator. What's the first thing you do? Grab the milk. And then what do you do after that? Check the date of that bad boy. Right? You want to make sure this joint hasn't expired. I recently had a bowl of cereal. And I was like, I, did, I checked the date and I thought, okay, it's, 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 you know, you, it's graceful a couple of days. And, Grace. So I, I started eating. I was like, man, something don't taste right, you know? And so I texted my wife and said, hey, how many days are you allowed to have? And she, you know, I said, something doesn't taste right. And so she was like, well, don't eat it then. <laughs> my wife has proverbial wisdom. It's like, well, stop it. <laughs> I'm trying to think through it. Well, I mean, I'm kind of hungry. She's like, don't eat it then. So I followed her advice. And she, the next morning she was like, yeah, baby, that was, yeah, yeah, that wasn't a good thing. And that was our fault. I had the milk hidden all the way in the back. I didn't realize it was in the back. So that was all. So when I, the point was, it wasn't good. <laughs> I just wanted to give y'all some. some just, 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 no, don't drink the milk. If, it's, if, it, if it tastes funny, don't do it. That milk tasted like car tires. If you ever. You don't have to know what it tastes. If you know what it smells like, you know what it tastes like. So it tastes like car tires. That has nothing to do with Abraham having faith. But listen. <laughs> Wanted to take a break, a mental break. I don't have to have faith that the milk is good. But Abraham, Abraham wasn't circumcised. He didn't earn it. It was a seal. Just like that date of when the milk is, that's a seal. That's a seal to know, okay, after this, after a certain time, this goes bad. Circumcision was a seal to say you belong to God. After you're seen as righteous. That's the point that he's making. And he's saying this is why God did that in verse 11. He received this seal saying you belong to God. While he was still uncircumcised so that he would also be the father of those who are uncircumcised. Who? The Gentiles. So he's proving the point. These people have the same grace that you have, Jews. You were circumcised. But Abraham was declared righteous when he was not circumcised. Why? So that he'd also be the father of them who are not circumcised. So in other words, all the people who have faith in, in Christ are sons of Abraham because you believe 
God without having any evidential proof. That is precious to God because he knows that we are seeing as believing people. Keep going in verse, in verse 12, he says this, and he became the father of the circumcised who were not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham that, that he had while he was still uncircumcised. This is a very serious claim. He's saying that circumcision was never meant to be your righteous without faith. Saying the real circumcision to God or what circumcision represented was that you should have faith. You are people that have been given the relational connection to God because of Abraham's faith. We're, we're descendants of Abraham. So circumcision represents a reminder that faith must be in you. It's not the replacement of faith or obedience. It's supposed to be the seal, the reminder, don't drink past this date. I know this stuff is just a lot of crazy stuff because we don't think about circumcision in that way. That stuff doesn't, it's not our world. But we'll remember, we're entering back into the world and the argument that he's making so that it makes sense. He keeps going in verse 13. He's, he's nailing this. He's still, he's still swinging. The dude who was eating chips in the third row dropped him. He says this, for the promise to Abraham, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law. It wasn't through like do's and don'ts. It wasn't through the Mosaic law, but it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. He believed, Abraham believed God before he was told anything else. The law wasn't established for another, you know, the law was somewhere around 14, some people say 1446 B.C. So you're talking a ways away from that before the law was even established. And righteousness was already established first. Faith in God was established before any of the Ten Commandments. Faith is always what starts it. Obedience is always what continues it. Faith always starts it. Obedience continues it till the end. Verse 14, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is nullified. In other words, if those who are children of God and co-heirs with Christ are only that way because they kept the law, then the promise that God made of righteousness doesn't count then because that's not what he said it would be. And that means all the Gentiles who didn't keep the law cannot have faith. They can't be considered their sins forgiven. So when they stand before God, they're going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. He's arguing against that reality. Because the law produces wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. You know what the law did? The law, and I've, I explained this before, <clears throat> when my kids were little, they don't understand concepts. Like, they don't understand, like, hot, right? They've never been exposed to that stuff. So, so to understand that, you know, they would come up to the stove and, it, you know, there might be a pot pan boiling some water or something. And you'd be like, no, 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 no. You grab them and say, no, hot. And they'd be like, they'll look at you like this. My son's be like this, hot. <laughs> and the woozy the owl eyes, like, hot. And I'd be like this, hot, don't touch, hot. And, you know, they never had to touch it to know that what hot meant. They knew, like, I'm not supposed to touch that. It's hot. It's hot. 
And there's a reality. This is, this is something that you get through training and through teaching. He's, he's making this case here that where there's no law, there's no transgression. There was, there was no understanding. The law was supposed to tell them that this is actually sin. The law was never established to say you're righteous before God in and of itself. The law that God brought was to show you this is actually sinful. Son, this is actually hot. Don't touch this. If I hadn't told him that, he would never know that that was hot. So when God brings the law and he say, these are the things that are sinful, that do not honor me, don't do them. And then you realize, wow, these are things I do and enjoy. Man. That's what the law did. The law revealed this is sinful and, and brought about wrath. Because as soon as it came around, people were like, well, man, this is what I like to do. Verse 15, this is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight and who Abraham believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that does not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. So he is just nailing this, that it's about faith. And he says, Abraham is the example. It's about faith. It's about faith. It's like Abraham. It wasn't about the law. Abraham didn't even know the law existed. But he was, he was seen as righteous because he believed something that he could not see, didn't even know. And every one of us in here, if you are a genuine Christian, you believe in Jesus without any real evidence apart from this word and the testimony of other people. And God says, because of that, and you're now obeying things, you're going against your own desires because you believe something that you haven't seen. God says, man, your sins are forgiven and you are righteous because of that, because you have faith. Do not nullify your faith because sometimes you fall. And he proves Abraham's faith real quick in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. When God told him he was going to have children and he was 90 years old, he believed him. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body since he was about 100 years old. Okay, he was 100, excuse me. And also the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was 90. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. This is why your faith is like Abraham, because everyone in here who's a genuine Christian believes that your sins are forgiven and that when you take your last breath, you're going to be in heaven with the Lord. Is that, who believes that? Just out of curiosity. You don't have to be, it's not, it's not arrogant to believe that. That's the promise in the book. Okay. Do you know you do that without any real sure evidence? Do you know that? How many people, all the people, most of the people that have died and come back, they have, they just be different. It's hard to follow what they say. Afterwards, they get into all types of other stuff. It's a rare occasion that someone's died. There's no occasion where someone's died, come back five years later and say, hey, listen, y'all going to enjoy it. I mean, you just don't get that, right? You don't have any evidence. 
And yet you and I believe and we resist and we fight and we fail and we pray. And sometimes God doesn't say anything back and we read and we fight and we do all these things and we try to have joy and we try to not be bitter. And we do all these things only because we believe something that we haven't seen. We have no real evidence that it's true except for faith. And for some people, that's foolishness. For us, it's eternal life. Don't nullify your faith because sometimes you fall. It's precious to God because he knows that you have, all of us have all the reason in the world based on what we see to not believe. To not believe. You cannot look at the world and be like, yeah, Christianity is the right. Yeah, Jesus is, is Lord. All the evidence suggests otherwise. And yet we read, we fight, we pray, we resist. We try to have joy in the circumstances. We, we thank God for some of the most toughest times. Don't nullify your faith because sometimes you fall. It's hard for all of us. I'm not preaching to everyone but me. Verse 22, therefore was credited to him for him, credited to him for righteousness. But now it was, but, but now it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone. This is, verifies everything I just said. But also for us. It wasn't just for Abraham, it's for us. It will be credited to us who believe him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's for us as well. And then he does something. I think this is actually a brilliant argument what he does here. And then he goes into verse five and he gives some, some of the, the great things about being justified. He gives a couple of different things to say this is some of the consequences in a good way for being justified, for having faith. And he says this, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, here's the first one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is important. He's saying we have peace with God. He's not talking about the subjective peace. It's like I have a a, a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a peace that you and I can subjectively say, I have peace. He's talking about an objective sense that now it's not peace that we feel, it's peace that God has allowed. We are at peace with God the Father, whether we feel that peace or not. And the reason why this is important, because I don't want people here who may struggle with anxiety or struggle with fear or worry to think, man, this is a part of who I am. I don't feel like I have peace. The peace he's talking about is that there's no beef that God has with you or I. When we stand before God, even though we're going to be like, oh, man, you're going to remember everything I did. He's going to be like, welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Put your guard down. Welcome home. There's no, we have peace. Because you believe in the Prince of Peace. The next thing he says, the next wonderful reality, verse 2, for we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace which we stand. We have access. He says, you have access. Remember, remember in Mark 15, Jesus dies, the world shakes, there was a big earthquake. And 
And then it says in the temple, the curtain was torn in two. An angel or God, someone tore the curtain. That was God saying, no longer will anything stop me from having access to people. You don't have to go to no priest to have your sins forgiven or, the, or, 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 or do none of that. You can pray where you're at. You talk to God wherever you are. If you have a prayer closet, cool, but you can talk to him on your way to work. Eyes open and all that. I would actually encourage your eyes open if you're driving <laughs> to work. Jesus did say, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't, don't try to be so godly that you pray and all of a sudden, boom, now you're in a neck brace and you can't do it. You have access. We have access to God. This means that not just, you know, Hebrews 4, approach the throne of grace with confidence. God is saying, listen, because of Jesus, now I'm letting everybody can pray to me. Anyone can come to me. Draw near to me. And last in verses 3 through 5, he says this. And this one is not as fun, but it's a, it's a blessing. It's a reality. He says, not only that, we also rejoice in our afflictions. Afflictions is basically a very strong word for a multitude of a variety of suffering. That's what affliction means. He says, we rejoice in our affliction because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces character, produ produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we suffer. We suffer. Sometimes because we're Christian. In other words, you're a Christian and you're going to suffer. Your people are getting kidnapped and killed in other countries. Sometimes you suffer because you're a Christian and sometimes you suffer as a Christian because you're resisting things. You're going through things. You're, and listen, Anytime we go through tough circumstances, the first thing we want to do is blame God. Yeah. And one of the easiest things it is to do is withdraw from God. Mm. I'm not talking about walking away from the faith. I'm talking about I'm not really reading. I'm not really in the mood to pray. I'm not really in the mood to go to church. I really don't want to go to my small group. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like this, I just, it's me time right now. It's the real meology. We all have that. I've done that. We all do that. Mm -hmm. It's a struggle. When we go through tough things, it's like, man, what is the problem? And the reason why we struggle is because we know God in a, in a heartbeat can just stop that. He could take that away. We're waiting for him to peace be still a win like he did the disciples in Matthew 8. But he doesn't. And he explains why. Because this is producing character. Your suffering produces character and hope. How so? Because when you're suffering, when our suffering doesn't take us away from God, It helps us understand what it takes to trust God. You know, when I was a kid, I remember I used to ride bikes a lot. And there was this, path, there was this wooded area that I don't know if some, somehow it just was like this, it was like a good racetrack. It was almost like a, like a BMX kind of track back there in the woods. And so it was called the dips. We used to call it the dips. And we used to love it because I, I, you know, I'd go down there, go down the thing and pull up on my bike, pop a nice one. You know, whatever, I used to do all this stuff. One day, I don't know what, I remember this perfectly, but I don't know how this happened. I, I went down, I was going a little fast and my handlebars were shaking and it was like, you're going too fast to stop. So either you're going to stop, try, you're going to wreck trying to stop or you're going to take your chances and wreck whatever happens. So I was like, I ain't going to try to stop. So I'm going too fast. And they called my name, they used to call me Cece. They were like, Cece, you're going too fast. And I was like, man, it's too late. And so 
And so I went down and I hit the thing and jumped up. And I remembered watching like my, uh, my front tire. I had these big, I didn't have spokes. I had these big mags in it. And I just remember looking at it in slow motion. It was like, foof, 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 foof. And then, then reality hit. I landed, boom, and wrecked. And I was, I had this, I was scarred up. Leg was scarred up and all of that. I was in pain. But that pain prepared me to be able to handle other pain later. That pain helped me be able to handle the pain of twisted ankles for playing sports and back pains and different things. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but it's like I've done this before. I felt pain before. I don't like it, but I can do it. I can make it. Our suffering, our circumstances is so we get to the point like, God, we still trust you. We can make it. We've got through some tough things before. If it were easy, then any adversity would throw us off. So adversity is there to say, I'm producing actual hope in you. I'm producing character because you still trust me. There is no genuine Christian in this room that has not experienced unwarranted, even prolonged suffering. And the fact that you still believe in God means you're proving this verse to be true. It's producing in you a character and a hope. So don't nullify your faith, even though sometimes you fall. And we'll end with this. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still sinners or helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person through Though for a good person, perhaps someone might dare to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is what he's trying to say. Some people would die like for like, oh, man, that person is a decent person. You would risk your life to save someone who's decent. At best, some people would do that. There are people who you, you've heard like hero, you know, given their life. They sacrifice their life to save these people. And some people will do that. But he's saying no one's going to do that for someone you know is evil. You are not going to do that for someone that you know is going to be evil or commit the same things again that you hate. You're not going to do that. You'd be like, hey, well, man, you know, I'm, man, I'm not, only God will judge them. Or if you got family, it's like, hey, man, better you than me, bro. You're not going to risk it. For someone that's a good person or a righteous person, somebody might give their life for. You hear military, guys jump on a grenade and blow up, save their comrades. Wonderful achievement. What he's saying is for an unrighteous person, nobody's going to do that. And he's saying that's exactly what Christ did. Christ didn't die for good people. He died for unrighteous people who were going to sin again and again and again and again and again and again, even after he gave his life. And he said he still said, I'll do it. Verse 8, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? In other words, if he died for us and we've been declared righteous by his blood, how much more so will we don't have to worry about the wrath that is to come? And again, this takes faith because it's not our experience. When we sin against God, we feel like God's tired of us. I know I'm not the only one. You don't want to lift your hands and worship. You don't even want to come to church. You don't want to be around anybody that's going to remind you of God or that you sinned against them. 
And he's saying, listen, you've been declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? If God gave us faith and declares us as righteous, again, these are all things that we don't experience, but by faith we know to be true. If God does that, how much more will we be saved by his life? In other words, listen, there's another scripture that says that God will not forget your obedience and the work that you've done. Listen, if you're a Christian in this room and you're obviously not perfect, none of us are, from the top down, and you're fighting to glorify God, and even though you fail, sometimes willfully, sometimes for seasons where it seems like you're failing more than you're progressing, there's genuine faith in the Lord and you're fighting because, because you want to honor the Lord. The Lord is not going to look at that and be like, sorry, bro, you ain't make it. That's not how he is. He understands faith, obedience. Psalm 103, 10 through 12. For he remembers how we are formed, that we are only dust. It pleases God when people do things solely because they want to honor him even though they're failing at different times in the process. He is not going to be like, you sin too many times. That's not how it works. It's you believe Jesus and you were living your life, even though you had no evidence that these things were true, at least from your senses. He is not going to forget that. So do not nullify your faith because sometimes you fall. And I'll end with this. Verse 10 again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have now received this reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, first I thank you because I actually got to the end of it. Even though it's a couple minutes over, I thank you that, that the truth that's in these words, that we are so, I don't often think of myself as having the faith of Abraham. I always think of his faith as something supernatural and mine as something, at best, weak. But as you've laid out in your word in this argument, is that the faith that we have is identical to Abraham's. Because we too, like him, believe something that our, our senses can't verify. We believe in the reality of our salvation. Many of us 
who are believers in here believe that when we die, despite the ways that we've sinned, that we'll get to go to heaven from you without any evidence apart from your word. And so, Lord, I pray for each of us, every one of us who genuinely believes in you, who are momentarily discouraged, that we will find confidence and trust in you based on what you've said in your word, that we would imitate the faith that you've given us like Abraham, and that we would believe who we, who we are that you have declared for us because we don't need to have our senses give us evidence. Our faith is precious to you. And it's that alone that declares us righteous, not our works. So, Lord, may we not dismiss our faith because sometimes we fail. But may we not also pursue failure because there's grace. For you will, you will speak to that in Romans chapter 6. But for now, Lord, help us to remember that for those of us who are going through times of struggle, that it does produce hope. It produces character. It produces endurance. For just like a, a scab from a childhood teaches me how to absorb pain later in life, so do our trials teach us how to trust you when it's not easy. And when we do that and we're able to thank you for our afflictions, doesn't mean we want them or like them, but we're able to say thank you in spite of them. It proves that you've given us a hope for your glory and our good. So may no genuine believer in this room nullify your grace or their faith because sometimes we fail. And Father, I pray for anyone who's not a believer in this room yet, that they would hear this. And I don't know what made sense, what went over their head, what was absurd and what was legitimate to them. Only you can make those things clear, but I pray for those who have grown up in an atmosphere where they've heard these things a lot and can be unmoved by these things. I pray that you would freshly stir their hearts for their rejection of you is not cool. It's only prized and, and, and appreciated by those who also reject you. Lord, soften their hearts to come to the place of recognizing, even though they failed or even though it's difficult at times to believe and trust, that they are, can be declared righteous by believing and trusting. I pray that you would give them faith or give them the humility to ask questions or, or to consider that maybe what they think is wrong. Because there's a lot at stake if they're wrong. So Lord, now as we take communion, as we participate, this is for us who believe in you. I pray that you would help us to remember, be grateful for, and continue in the grace that you've given us as we eat of this little wafer that represents your body being broken on the cross. And we drink of this, this juice as representative of your body, your blood being shed for us. We do this in celebration, in gratitude for your glory and for our good. May this part of the service, this conclusion of our time together, this 
Last Supper, this communion, this remembrance of what you've done in connection to what we heard in this sermon, may it encourage our souls to continue to the end. In your name we pray. Amen. Ushers can come forward. Pass out the elements, and we'll take this together when everyone has it. <laughs>